Hi, and welcome to Mavericks Radio. I'm your host, Christian Roy, and this is the place to be to become your best self, do work you love, and live life on your terms. On this podcast, we speak to Mavericks who inspire us, people who play to their strengths, follow the heart, and do their best to create positive impact. We aim to get the insight and wisdom from their story to give you the clarity, courage, and confidence to carve your own path through life. This week's guest is Hannah Neyman McCloskey, the CEO and founder of Fearless Futures. Hannah is just one of the most inspirational people I've ever met. Diversity and inclusion is such a big topic right now, but so many organizations and so many people are basically papering over the cracks and Hannah basically nails that. She drives below the surface, talks about the true root of inequity and inequality in society and what organizations really need to do to bring about social justice and change. This for me is one of the most important podcasts you can listen to this year. So let's jump right in and hear what Hannah has to say. Hannah, really excited to have you here today. So, um, and we love what Fearless Futures is all about. So tell us a little bit about you and tell us a little bit about what you're up to with Fearless Futures. I'll start with me first. Um, So I am Hannah Naima McCloskey. I am the founder of Fearless Futures. Um, We are not too far from where I grew up, which um, was in Brent, in Wembley in Brent, um, and uh, born to an Algerian mum and a British father, um, and basically have lived in Northwest London all my life and now also live (laughs) back in that area. (laughs) And I guess part of you know, the motivation for starting Fearless Futures is really connected actually to my heritage and the kind of realizations and awakenings I had in relation to what it means to be of mixed heritage in this country, but somebody who is red as white, um, but also what that, what the implications of being, you know, for my mom, an Arab Muslim migrant woman when she came here in the late 1970s, what it means for my Algerian family that do live here and and really kind of coming to grips with you know racism in this country what it looks like also what it looks like kind of globally and that was part of the kind of work that I was doing on myself that led to in some way informing some of the kind of foundational thinking for fearless futures so yeah so that's been a huge part my me is a huge part of fearless yeah, futures yeah, yeah. but me specifically in relation to some of those dynamics in particular makes sense makes sense and tell us what fearless futures actually yeah. is so fearless futures is an education organization we do in-person education and i say that we do that for like 99 percent of the time except for the times where we're sending emails to people <laughs> to coordinate <laughs> and organize uh, such uh, such training um our kind of tagline or our mission statement is to support people to critically engage um, their kind of their thinking to understand and challenge the root causes of inequities um, and in so doing um, to support them to grow powerful new leadership and design for transformative change so there's qu- quite a lot in there yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but what we what we're really kind of speaking to in that kind of slightly too long sentence <laughs> is um, a need to surface root causes if we're going to make a, a difference to people's lives. Um, we take as a kind of given within our starting point that the world is unjust and unequal currently, mm-hmm. the way that it's been uh, crafted and designed, but we're ultimately a hopeful organization insofar as we believe that it is 100% possible um, to create a world that is just, that is inclusive, where everyone can belong, mm. um, feel safe, have legitimacy, dignity, and so on. Um, and the, the, these thing, the, the opposite of those things is not an inevitability. Um, but it is something that is very real and impacts people's lives every single day. 
but it's also so normalized right mm. we yeah, we of course for for many of us who don't live within the sites of these exclusions and inequalities you know we're like a fish in water we just think that it's a kind of normal part of life that this is just the way that it is mm. um and for us part of um moving people towards action um is to realize actually it isn't the way that it has to be yeah, yeah, um, and yeah. that these things are live and real and true for lots of people and then crucially supporting them to engage the power and privilege they do have in relation to certain inequalities to, to take meaningful action for them uh, to kind of to challenge those things um, and we do that through a leadership perspective and then from a design perspective so leadership is looking at things on an interpersonal level so who am I in relation to other people that I either work with or know and so on and then the design piece um, is about how we have a method for inclusive design for our processes and our outputs and our internal cultures um, within organizations um, yeah so that, that's what we do amazing absolutely yeah. amazing there's and there's a like a whole lot of stuff here I really want to unpack yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I'm really curious because I know obviously you you've kind of done work with various NGOs mm. kind of personally mm -hmm. before fearless futures mm -hmm. I know you've done the kind of uh, international relations and conflict management and stuff and all that kind of thing. Let's take on the kind of the yeah. startup path for a, yeah. for a start because you've effectively started started up an organisation. What's kind of been the path to actually lead you to the startup and then mm. some of the challenges of actually being a startup founder? Gosh, so many. Um, so I think I was working, so I did lots of work in the international development space, as you said, and then um, conflict management, a master's and so on, and ended up in investment banking um, for a bunch of unusual reasons. Um, but I had this idea, which I've now discovered to be not true, which is that the private sector is where everything of importance happens, which is a very common trope, actually. Lots of people yeah, do yeah, think yeah. that, that that's where you get stuff done. Um, I joined an investment bank um, at right at the beginning of the financial crash because I was naive enough at the time to believe that there was a consensus around the fact that we needed a new financial system because yeah, the current yeah, one yeah. didn't work for everyone. Not true. Not everyone did believe that we no, needed no, a new no, financial no, no, absolutely. system. Some people really liked the existing financial system and just wanted to repair it back to where it was. I also was naive enough to believe that like one person in a massive institution was going to be able to change um, the way things get done, which is also categorically not a possibility. It's just not the way change happens. Yeah. I've since learned. Um, but it was during my time in investment banking where, um, bizarre as it might seem, it I was really so alert to the prevailing kind of dynamics of who and who wasn't in such an, a space. Mm -hmm. So coming from my mindset of how do we create a financial system that is fair and equal, um, it turns out that if you just have white people, if you just have men people, if you just have <laughs> middle class people in those spaces, yeah. you're going to end up with outcomes that are not going to be um, serving uh, people who don't live within those kind of sites mm. of, of, of their identity. So that was my first thing. And my second thing was just doesn't make any sense. Like this cannot be the way that we kind of structure an organization. Mm. Um, why is it that certain people don't get to fully participate? Um, obviously, acknowledging in the first place that the institutions themselves weren't set out to do what I felt that they needed to be doing if mm. they were gonna be living their true purpose. But that aside, like 
it just was a deeply unfair terrain. Yeah. Um, and so I ended up doing a lot of, I started getting really involved in diversity and inclusion work inside the organization. Um, I was on steering committees and DNI councils galore, um, and nothing changed, nothing right. happened. Like right. we'd meeting after meeting, and what happened for me is I ended up Googling, you know, as you do, and within the s within Google, <laughs> um, you know, sometimes you can end up down these rabbit holes. Uh, yeah, We've I'm all been there. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wikipedia <laughs> through to hyperlink to hyperlink, and then hours have gone past. Um, I ended up coming across black feminist thought and scholarship. Um, black feminist or black feminism is uh, principally the kind of mode of scholarship uh, for black women um it's a kind of it, it's a it's global scholarship yep. but what i found really powerful in reading um the likes of bell hooks who's my all-time mm. favorite uh human being and i do firmly believe and i say regularly that if everyone just read her work fearless futures wouldn't need to exist um because she is um, just an incredible uh an incredible actor activist sorry educator and scholar um but what black feminists have been doing um throughout history actually mm. is exploring the ways in which different oppressions interconnect mm -hmm. looking at the way racism connects and interconnects and it, as in, and is entwined with racism mm -hmm. and is entwined with class um and classism um in order to kind of illuminate um, the kind of the new unique nature of what occurs when those things come together yeah. and that was particularly important because um, and is particularly important because often um, these issues are thought about in silos people and scholars thinking about um, racism as, as one piece sexism you know the mainstream feminist movement is predominantly white middle-class heterosexual women yeah. saying yeah. these are the things that we need um, without understanding or seeking to explore and, and in some cases actually outright dismissing erasing um, the concerns of women of color um, trans women working class women and women that exist across many many sites of oppression um, and black feminism says no we can hold these concepts in our head at the same time and it is radical and transformative because it believes that a that justice is possible when we do engage in understanding all of these things yeah. simultaneously. Yeah. Um, so I ended up, thanks to google.com, <laughs> un uncovering this body of, of thought. And it was incredibly powerful for me in terms of understanding my own whiteness in the world and what mm -hmm. that affords me as I navigate the planet, um, but also to become closer in my relationship to my heritage and to, I think, really be able to um, get present to what the struggles were for my mum mm. um, and other you know, members of my Algerian family in particular, um, that was very like, both very kind of important personally, but also very liberating. So that was kind of happening at once. And simultaneously, I was seeing the complete ineffectiveness <laughs> of the mainstream diversity and inclusion. Right. Um, narrative action whatever you want to call it um and i thought god you know there must be another way of doing this mm. um one of the main things that i found really powerful 
in the writing of Bell Hooks in particular is she, she also writes as an educator, as someone that works with people um, across different backgrounds in her work in universities predominantly to, to surface and understand these issues mm. um, and so she writes a lot about pedagogy and pedagogy is just a fancy word for saying like the way people learn or the yeah. way that you teach and she does a huge amount of writing on this which our work is really heavily drawn from mm. most of which is about engaging in discomfort being able to hold people in deeply hold people in particular those who have power and privilege in in emotional discomfort when, when confronted yep. with the ways in which they might be showing up in the world and the impact that that has. That, for me, was something that I felt was really, really missing in the diversity and inclusion space for in most workplaces um, because it was all happy clappy let's high five everything's great Absolutely. let's celebrate difference all of which is fine if you've done the, the kind of reparatory yeah. the restorative work in the first place yeah. that enables a celebration um, not everything can be celebrated because some things are really painful yeah um, and we and we need pain to be healed before we can celebrate mm. so I found I, I basically was observing and witnessing very troubling uh, narratives that I kind of my hypothesis was this is why nothing changes because no one's prepared to engage in discomfort no one's prepared that some people might feel upset in order to give other people their safety legitimacy and dignity right. and there was a kind of false equivalency between you know white people being upset about things and the harm of racism right, right? which is right. obviously not the same um, or you know men being upset that they might you know that people are saying that they shouldn't be sexually harassing people and the harm of being sexually harassed you know like these are yeah, very different things yeah really but there's a lot of conflation because workplaces aren't set up actually for emotional conflict no, you know they, not at all. we all just sort of walk around pretending everything's okay you know the passive aggressive email and <laughs> whatever yeah, yeah, it might yeah, be yeah. these aren't the kind of emotional frameworks that you need to really do deep um, deep work on these issues so all of this I was observing and I thought there's got to be another way and so fearless futures was really born out of my observations of what wasn't working mm -hmm. and a kind of vision of what it would take for stuff like this to work I should say that we also work in schools mm -hmm. um, and that's in fact where we started right. or where I started the organisation and the schools work is still a huge part of what we do mm. and it's incredibly important, powerful and very hopeful work. There were a few reasons to start in schools. One is that there were fewer barriers to entry for me personally as somebody yeah, starting yeah. an organisation. Schools are in many ways, a, you know, because their mission is ultimately to like care for young people, mm -hmm. um, they're in the first instance they were also much more open to um, having a new intervention yeah. in their schools which was really exciting and on a kind of on another note young people are um, really very blunt if they think that you're boring or crap they will tell you and so being someone that didn't have a facilitation background who yeah, was like yeah, embarking yeah. on this new skill I needed to know whether I was any good at it for it to... Talk about immediate feedback. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They just simply wouldn't show up if they thought it was <laughs> um, boring, not interesting, not relevant. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it turned out I was a great facilitator, which is obviously really handy, given that that was the yeah, yeah, yeah. direction of Fearless Reaches. And obviously, had I not been a very good facilitator, Fearless Reaches either might not exist today, but also might be doing something very different although I've yeah. always had a deep connection to kind of in-person education I just mm -hmm. I guess sort of just in my gut feel like that's 
the most important way that we can do stuff. You can see literally, mm. you know, people. You can look people in the eyes and kind of connect. Absolutely right. Yeah, and kind of experience their humanity like mm. firsthand. I think is really really important. Um, so our schoolwork remains, um, and so and we started there, and then we've added in the work that we do with mm. organisations, principally senior leaders. Um, thereafter, um, but your question was, what are the challenges, or like what yeah, happened? Yeah. And for me. Lots of people always say, like, was it really scary, like, the day that you, like, handed in your notice? Weirdly, it wasn't scary at all. Mm -hmm. I didn't have this sense of, like, impending doom or, like, concern. And I guess it's, for me, I just had this deep sense that that's what I just needed to do. Yeah, yeah. So, for me, it wasn't... I do think it was quite reckless, actually. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when I think about it now, it didn't make that much sense. But, you know, I had been... I think it's important to acknowledge that having been an investment banker, I had savings. Not many people have the opportunity to risk an experiment when they have financial obligations, when they have families. I didn't... I was... um, I'm married, so my husband's been able to... Um, to support uh, in emotional and um, and financial ways. Yeah. Um, so for me, I just had this deep sense. I'd been to New York on holiday a few weeks prior mm-hmm. um, and been walking through the st- streets of New York. I'd already had the idea for Fearless Futures. I'd Googled, I was like, if this other organization exists that already does what I think Fearless Futures should do, I'll just go join them as an intern. Like, right. I didn't really want to start anything. I just, ha- I just wanted to be involved in something that did this kind of right. work. So, I googled a lot. Nothing. Nothing, which was a real bugger. And I was like, oh no, this <laughs> I've got to do things it. are getting serious now. Um, and then was walking through New York, and New York has this incredible energy that I really connect with. I don't know whether you ever, yeah, 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 been. yeah. Loads of times. Um, it's amazing. It's a great city, and I just thought, God, now's the time to do it. And I mentioned it to my husband, and I was like, I really think I might just quit this week. And he's like, okay, sure, well, let's just, you know, have a chat, think think this through. And I was like, cool. Anyway, and then, like, two <laughs> days later, on the Thursday, I called him, I was like, hi, Paul, so I resigned just now, <laughs> and I've got three months, and then I'm, I'm doing it. And he was like, shit, like, I thought we were going to have... Like, I thought we were going to have a chat and a plan. <laughs> I was like, I know, but I just felt I had to do it. I'm really sorry. Like, it's going to be fine. And he was, he was just like, what the hell? <laughs> like, we're meant to be a, in a husband and wife relationship where we actually discuss this kind of thing. Um, so that was a bit of a shock. My mm. parents were also really shocked. I think they thought it was, a, again, a really reckless thing to do. Mm. You know, my like everyone in my parents family you know they're like the first people to go to university my parents um my mum thought it was absolutely nonsensical that I would give up a secure well-paid job to just like fanny about in her world and like just give something a go I think she just felt like this is just something in many ways that like you know she's a teacher that she would never have done it was just like such a an alien concept that people would just leave well-paid jobs just have a go at something kind of generational yeah as much as anything right totally and i also think it's you know um you know being an immigrant to this country like Mm. why would you just i mean obviously what she did herself like moving countries is a very risky thing to do and um, potentially conceived that way and very scary but like then to be like she has a good job this doesn't make any sense yeah Um, and my dad i think until recently just thought the whole thing was just like never gonna work you know um and they they weren't mean about it no 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 but they were just like 
this is like they've had the same job their entire lives right. you know um so there was a lot of people a lot of people kind of were like humoring me not necessarily my parents but like people i knew they were like okay that's great it's right. going to work in schools and with adults doing this kind of deep radical education sure got it like wow. we'll see you on the other side of that um and it's really hard when you i mean you'll know this perhaps um when you start up an organization whenever you meet people people always ask you like how's it going mm. and it's like so hard to describe like am i an eight out of ten for where i should be at this moment in time like do you know what i mean like right. wh where Absolutely. should you be and what are the metrics what are the metrics the like what's the timeline that we're working yeah, like yeah. if i'm 25 years into the timeline then maybe i'm flying yeah, yeah. if the timeline's only one year then maybe I'm not doing very well because whatever's happened. Right. So I think I always felt the pressure also in the early days of like having to justify why I'd done what I'd done by having to say mm. like all this amazing stuff is happening, which I never really actually had to say. I was just like, actually, it's really hard. I could never really lie very <laughs> effectively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there feel it feels like, in particular, when you think about who startup founders are in our in our wider culture. Yeah, yeah. They are the stories we hear are the people who have like raised many millions in seed funding you know yeah. they've gone and you know they've got this many sales in whatever time yeah, it's and very it, dragon's den isn't yeah, it yeah exactly and very like a kind of hyper masculine you've got to hit these targets and you you know you've got swanky offices and all of this stuff um needless to say fearless Futures has not had that <laughs> <laughs> journey it has been much 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 more slow and steady um and we've never had ex we've never been externally funded yep. everything's been through organic growth um so none of it has actually been that sexy until probably like the last year Okay. Um, where even our sexy is still like not as sexy. It's still <laughs> granny knickers <laughs> compared to some organisations' oh, version of sexy. But that's still, re I mean, that's still really cool. And what what I love about that is, I mean, you know, your your journey is very similar to Mavericks in that way. You know, we've kind of grown organically, self-funded, yeah. all that kind yeah. of thing. But it's that that kind of thing of navigating this mm. thing where you have to. I mean, you you clearly have a bit of a, a vision, even if that's kind of emerging mm -hmm, or whatever, mm -hmm. or purpose, yeah. probably a, a, a better word. And to navigate that space where it's like people around you are not necessarily anti, mm. but sometimes just the fact that, as you say, to use your words, they're humouring you. Sometimes that's almost more difficult. Yeah. As it were, as you mentioned, the last year has kind yeah. of been the, the granny niggers. Yeah. <laughs> tell us, tell us about the last year then. What's kind of happened? So. I would say it, the kind of shift has occurred in the last two years, but we've seen the the, the kind of the fruits of what we've the fruits of what we've sown, or the, the fruits of your labour. Yes, the fruits of our labour. Good, good. I always confuse a, a, a pun or whatever it is. Um, so we've seen the fruits of our labour really increase in the last year. I think what we've seen occur is that we've managed to stumble across some really courageous internal agitators ah. in some very uh, large organisations. Um, and you can never underestimate the power of a, a few courageous people mm -hmm. who really mm -hmm. get what it is that you're doing and really want to stand for something within their own organisations. Right, right. And luck, chance, whatever it is, the universe working in our favour, mm -hmm. whatever we might call it, we managed to find a few of those key people and the work we've been able to do with them in organisations has mm. been has 
as a consequence gone to another level and the reality is that the kind of work that fearless futures does because it's so different to you know a 45 minute unconscious what bias webinar or whatever these weird things that people are selling to companies that obviously haven't worked otherwise you wouldn't need to keep redoing them and redoing them every two years or whatever it is um because we're so different you're going to need to have someone that really like in their gut is prepared to use some of their own political and internal reputational capital Mm -hmm. to say Mm -hmm. look folks we can just keep doing what we've been doing. We can webinar till we're blue in the face, or there might be some other way yep. that's going to take a bit more courage from us as an organisation and from our staff to co- to to be prepared to be in a space of discomfort, to be prepared to invest in long-term partnerships, mm. to to spend our time working through stuff that is so complex and nuanced that the idea that you could resolve it in an hour is like laughable it's like saying i could teach you to code krish and you'd you know you'd be able to generate your own app in an hour you know no one would ever say that they'd be like that's a really silly thing to say Mm. they'd say you're an idiot for trying to tell me that you could teach me to code in an hour they'd you know you'd be laughed but for this other area where we think we can so a lot of our work is saying to people like the paradigm that you're operating in is not fit for purpose if your vision is xyz if you do Mm. actually genuinely want to create an organizational culture that's inclusive uh where belonging is lived for everyone um where you have the fullness of humanity within the four Mm -hmm. walls of your organization this current method is just not going to crack cut it um so can you imagine and then somebody's Probably, you know, one of the things that I've realised is that the person that we're speaking to has probably been someone that's had to beg, borrow and steal to get the money in the first place to do the webinar rollout. Right. So can you imagine they then have to be like, oh, sorry, Bob, I got it wrong. You know, I've yeah. got to go with some other approach. That takes a lot of, like... Chutzpah. Yeah, it does. And you and somebody that's open to having got it wrong yeah, yeah. amongst senior stakeholders and whatever it might be. So... It's hard to find those those courageous characters. We're thrilled that we have, and courage, like lots of people say, is contagious. Mm-hmm. And when one courageous person is able to say, like, this is how I did it in my organisation, this is how I got the wheels turning yeah, yeah. to do something that is a really big departure from traditional ways of doing things, other people are like, oh, my God, okay, it's not this terribly like scary thing it, it can be done yeah yeah um and so that's been part of what's kind of generated the last uh years worth of really really significant momentum we're working globally now which Amazing. i didn't think was going to be happening um lots of you know work upcoming in the us as well as you know remaining in the uk um also in out in east asia um I must be like really precise. We're not. We're working with it with global, predominantly UK and American global yeah, organisations yeah. in these places. Yeah, makes sense. Um, we. I don't think. I think we know the limitations of where we can be useful and where we can't. Yep. And there are some contexts where we know that we don't have anything to offer. And there are probably really amazing. In fact, there certainly are amazing local organisations doing you know uh, similar work yeah, yeah. that those organisations should engage with. So it, it's in particular global contexts where where we we're not into domination. That's the opposite, in <laughs> fact, of yeah. what we're Absolutely. about. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's talk about impact because mm. I think you know what has you know one of the mavericks has been on your kind of flagship course mm-hmm, as it mm-hmm, were mm-hmm. and came back literally a changed person mm. for it as as you say you know uh, 
you know, I come from a, a people, OD kind of background. And in so many organisations, you know, as yeah. you say, diversity and inclusion is a, you know, it's a PR stunt or yeah. whatever else. What's different mm. about the Fearless Futures approach and what kind of impact have you seen it have in organisations? Mm. So the first thing is that we take an intersectional approach. And when I say inter- intersectional, what I mean is kind of referring to the piece around black feminist scholarship that kind of brought this to the fore which is really recognizing that inequalities are interconnected Mm -hmm. and that we cannot just look at things through a single lens Mm -hmm. that's absolutely imperative too many organizations do the following they say we need to get more women into senior leadership and then they say we're going to have a gender program of some description and then they say and this we're going to do gender for the next for example. Right. Um, now, it turns out, firstly, everybody has a gender. So th- that's let's put that to one yeah, side. Yeah, everybody yeah. has a gender. But not all genders are prioritised in the same way as others. Right. Um, but also, people have genders that interconnect with other issues and inequalities yeah, and identities. Totally. And the reality is that the struggles of a white woman, while she experiences sexism, are different to a woman of colour. Right, mm-hmm. because the woman of color experiences both racism and sexism simultaneously. She can't just say, "I'm going to switch off my racism and only think about the sexism I experience." Right, right, according right. to your internal program, she's existing across both of those pieces simultaneously. A woman who is bisexual will be navigating all sorts of nuanced, complex gotcha. dynamics to her identity that um, that a heterosexual woman simply will not and will not have to face. And so if we want to work on one agenda, we have to be able to acknowledge the ways in which these other issues complicate, Mm -hmm. are interconnected with, compound this any one particular struggle. Mm. And it depends and it this is the same for whichever way you look at it, you know? Whether you know, across any movement, whether it's the movement for LGBT rights, feminism, uh, racial justice, whatever it might be, we always see that there are certain people within those spaces who are privileged and those who aren't. That's the reason why we have black pride in this country, because black people were not able to to be their full selves within the LGBTQ plus umbrella within the the mainstream space, for example. And it's also why we don't remember the very kind of as it were, the, the grandmothers of the Stonewall riots were yeah. two trans women of colour, Sylvia right. Rivera, uh, Martha P. Johnson, because they have been erased and other stories have been privileged within Absolutely. that narrative, even when they were the people instigating uh, that struggle yeah. and really putting their life on the line for those things. So until we're able to see the way that, that these issues connect, we're always we're never going to be serving everyone, everyone within those spaces. Mm. And that's a really dangerous place to be because you're telling some people... Implicitly, you need to wait your turn. Right. We right. don't care about you just this moment. You need to. We'll come to you, whoever you are. That's not a middle class, uh, straight white woman. We'll come to you in 2026 when we've got round to that. Right. Um. And that's oh that's not God, cool. That's not cool at all. That's not cool. But that's what's happening. That's yeah, what's happening yeah. all the time. We're saying no, no. We'll come to you when we're ready. And the people that are never going to be ready to come to that issue because the people setting that agenda simply probably aren't experiencing the lived reality of the people that yeah, they're telling yeah. to wait. So that's the first part. We really just believe you have to be able to engage with all of this. Now, what comes with that is it means people that don't experience an issue. So, for example, as a heterosexual person, I don't experience the various struggles um, that people within the wider LGBTQ plus umbrella are experiencing Mm -hmm. every single day. Um, 
I have a responsibility as a heterosexual person to dismantle and deconstruct the heteronormative world in which we live. Mm. I have a responsibility to stand up for, speak out, pass the mic to, whatever it might be, um, those who live within a site of struggle that I don't experience. Yeah, yeah. Now, for a lot of people, um, and I'm not excluding myself from that, that's really difficult to realise that you benefit mm. from stuff because you don't experience something and... an absolute payoff. Yeah, right? there's an absolute payoff, but people don't want to think that they're getting a payoff. No. People just want to <laughs> think that everything's cushy, that they're all happy clappy, that it's right. all really, that it's just normal, it's nothing to do with them, they didn't invent any of this stuff, mm. rather than seeing themselves as a perpe getting perpetually paid off by a system that at the expense of others. Right. And so we engage, we deal with that head on, we don't shy away from that. Love that. Um, and that's hard, it's hard for a lot of people who um, have privilege and power, it's, it's, it shouldn't need to be hard, but they find it emotionally difficult and our organisations are tailored to pr prioritise them yeah, yeah. over people who are on the sharp end of this stuff. So that's ultimately key. And then the second thing really quickly, it's easier to explain, is that our learning is experiential. While I've jabbered on with a lot of kind of detail and, and theory in this particular context, the learning itself in our workshops is experiential, which means we don't have PowerPoint slides where we're telling people, you know, you've got to remember these eight things. If you do these eight things, you're going to be fine. Or, you know, these are your do's, these are your don'ts. It's not like that at all. Um, participants construct their own insights from engaging mm. in experiential activities. And that is really, really important for our work. Firstly, no one likes being told what to do, right. even if it's a good thing. Even, you know, with the recycling, we all have a bug to bear with. <laughs> Why can't I put the yogurt carton right, right, in right. that bloody bag? Kind of <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, why is it that that isn't allowed? So for us, it's really important that people realise that they're opting in to this learning, mm -hmm. that to give them back their agency. And we say to people, look, we're giving you a set of experiences here. You can take them or leave them at the end of your training programme. While you're in it, we'd really like you to engage fulsomely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But afterwards, if it doesn't work for you, that's cool. Crack on. You know, your old beliefs are still going to be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're not going anywhere because we're, you know, we're not that smart <laughs> we can't we're not brainwashing you this is for you to be able to engage with take what you want and that for us is really important because it creates a context of um agency for people mm. um and freedom knowing that then our facilitators aren't there to convince anyone i'm not here to convince anyone either yeah, yeah, yeah. our energy will be spent in other ways I love that. um people can show up then in a way that's for them in those moments yeah 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 Absolutely. And just kind of taking that from kind of experience to to action, as it were, because mm. as you said, you that got was your question around yeah. impact. Yeah, what I'm, happens? Re I'm really kind of curious, because obviously, if you get someone who's like a senior person mm. from a large organisation, you know, a bit of a an agitator, as it were, yeah. and they then want to go back and do something from these experiences they've had, how do how do they ten typically tend to translate that to action? Yeah, that then has that creates an impact. Yeah, so I think there are kind of multiple tiers to the ways in which people uh, do things differently, depending on who they are in the world. Mm. They have various levels of um, responsibility and so on. We never underestimate the power of people reframing the narrative within their organisations. Mm. Um, the narrative that you're able to set up informs a lot within an organisational context. So, for example, we're working with an organisation who run a Women's Leadership Day every single year. Mm. This year will probably be the first time 
that it will not be full of uh, white middle class women talking about childcare 100% of the time and mentoring. That's only possible because certain people with significant power and influence in that organisation have recognised the absolute imperative of centering the voices of those who've been historically marginalised from quote-unquote women's spaces. That means women of colour, that means trans women, that means the women who exist within the Middle East and Africa part of the EMEA EMEA tag that don't normally get a look in. Um, That means lots of different women who experience compound inequalities and they are going to be centre stage and it will be their narratives that everyone will have to be paying attention to Mm. and listening to you could say well does it really take three days to get to that yeah it takes three days Mm. and a lot of people to be able for that organization to be within a context of ambition for itself Mm -hmm. but also to recognize that then that playing it safe leave some people basically says as we've said we're not going to come to you until 2026 yeah yeah you can't play it safe because playing it safe means some people's lives aren't safe um and that's one example and it's you know there's 1500 people at this conference that they do every year um and you know it's a really big deal so that's one example and i would put that in the level of like changing the discourse changing the narrative um then there are other things that are much more kind of procedural and structural around ensuring that um parental leave policy uh, is inclusive and i'm and also includes um trans people's experiences within Mm. there which otherwise often get excluded for example um and you know, looking at the ways, the, the very architecture of their organisations, mm. and coming at it with an intersectional lens, um, which obviously, you know, you could say, well, it's just one sheet of paper, but it has the potential to impact Absolutely hundreds huge. of thousands of people, and importantly, including those who don't yet work in your organisation, uh, yes, which I think course. is really important. You know, some people say, but we don't have any X, Y, Z. Well, firstly, you don't know because you probably don't have the data, and also, why would they tell you? But number two, like, but maybe they're going to be here tomorrow, and wouldn't you want this to be a site where? they can show up as their full selves then so then there's the architectural piece really just the everyday engagement that people have that you know many many stories of individual leaders being able to navigate very nuanced contexts um negotiating uh conflict between employees where some employees rights fundamental rights are being denied by another and before them saying, I wouldn't have known how to navigate that because I wouldn't have had a firm core. Mm-hmm. You know, like they wouldn't have had their like internal guiding principles about how justice looks like in yeah, yeah, their yeah. spheres of influence. Mm. And again, cannot underestimate that. It's so easy to be the leader that says, oh, well, we just want us all to be friends and yeah. then brushes everything under the carpet yeah, rather than able to confront and say, no, whoever you are, that language is unacceptable and it endangers this other member of the team mm. and while you might want to say stuff you don't just get to say stuff willy-nilly at the expense of somebody else yeah, yeah, somebody yeah, else's yeah, safety yeah. and we need that level of um, integrity I think more than ever mm-hmm. particularly with the rise of Islamophobia anti-semitism hate crime against trans people is you know everything's absolutely on on the rise and rising and while none of these things are new I think it's really important that leaders are able to navigate that and that people can can be who they need to be in work if they can't be when they're walking down the street right. at night for example so one of the things i want to pick, pick up on is one of the things you said just there was uh, in organizations might say well we haven't got 
that or and as you say well how would you know mm-hmm. and you know there are obviously certain certain intersections that are pretty damn obvious you can observe them there you know you yep. know gender um, race or ethnicity mm-hmm. age mm-hmm. Um, maybe even class but then there are what I'd almost call the more invisible ones mm-hmm. so you know is you can't yeah. always point at someone and say well they're LGBT no. or you know and you yourself come from that mixed um, yeah. mixed ethnicity background mm-hmm. like like I do yeah and obviously that's kind of a, I don't know if your experience has been it but for me being kind of Anglo-Indian mm. it's like I'm I you know I'm identified as white mm. and probably think that way but I'm neither completely white mm. nor completely Asian so I don't mm. fit you know so I guess my question is, where does, uh, what's the kind of impact of like the invisible um, intersections, if you like? Yeah, I mean, they're just as important. They might have particular dynamics mm-hmm. uh, because of that invisible nature. Our need to challenge those inequalities is just as important mm. um, alongside any. And also, as you've described, people can exist across visible and invisible or jumbling up together Um, you know what I would say is that just kind of on the point around my own mixed heritage I am mixed I'm of mixed ethnicity and that's really important to my identity and there are lots of things that kind of are harmful to me when people speak about for example Islam because Mm. I was raised Muslim you know the very first thing I've ever learnt to memorise was the opening surah of the Quran Um, you know it's very like close to my heart but simultaneously I am as white as can be and I need to be able to like um, be responsible for the impact that has Mm. while acknowledging that invisible part of my identity Um, but I, I would just I would simply say that you know all of those pieces have I guess it's like if you're someone that doesn't experience whatever it might be the default in your head should be, I should presume that I'm going to be doing harm with my behaviour mm. unless I reconsider my assumptions about anything. Because as you say, you never, n- you don't know somebody's sexuality just by looking at them, nor do you know necessarily their gender identity. Right. Um, or, or whatever it might be. And I think it's, so it, 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 I guess it's about like, what's your default setting? Mm-hmm. Is your default setting that you're moving through the world happy clappy, not doing any harm to anyone or is your default setting hold on I know I've got privilege here that shows up in some um, camp show up in some really harmful ways and therefore I need to constantly try and uh, uh, remove that and the harm that I'm mm. doing to other people and they're two obviously very different settings yeah, yeah. Um, one is about prevention rather than <laughs> than, yeah. than apologizing and one is well I'll just see what happens I'll just go about my merry way um, and in some ways, you know, we can never quantify what's more harmful or not. We just have to, all of this stuff, um, all these oppressions are harmful. And um, it's the responsibility of those ultimately who don't experience them to put an end to them yeah, yeah, as yeah. beneficiaries. So, uh, you know, kind of flip, flipping on its head, yeah. kind of starting from that place of, you know, those those with power and privilege, as it were. I mean, you know, I guess one of the, one of the basic psychological principles is we don't create change by making people, you know, feel that they're wrong, as mm. it were, that kind of thing. So, mm. so you know, there are, like you say, there are going to be people who, you know, we, we know of men, uh, for example, who, as you, the example you mentioned earlier, who kind of maybe bleat and complain about, like, the sexual discrimination thing, and that's not the same as being sexually, uh, sorry, um, sexually assaulted or sexually mm-hmm. wha- whatever. And there are going to be people who are just in that, position but blissfully unaware maybe mm. or whatever what's what's kind of the stance of 
bringing those people on board. So it's not a, an immediate, well, you know, you're in that position, so therefore, you know, you're quote unquote wrong or whatever. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, so my first thing I think would be that it's very rare that you meet people who don't presume just because you've raised the issue that you think they're wrong. One of the greatest get out of jail free cards is to say, yeah, you've made me, you, you've said I'm this or that. And you're like, hold on, we were just having a conversation about yeah, yeah, yeah. the increase in um, Islamophobic hate crime. I, and they're like, you're calling me a racist. Hold, no, no one said anything. So the, the kind of the, the quintessential lash out is mm. a justification to not have to engage in the issue. Right. So that's the first thing I would say. But I would then go on and say that one of the things that we do in our work is support people to identify guilt and shame when they're showing up for them. Right. Because often adults, because we're not really taught this by and large, no, don't understand when they are feeling those things. Mm. And guilt and shame have very, very unhelpful byproducts Absolutely when you're right. experiencing them. Um, so we borrow from Brene Brown. She yeah, uses lovely. guilt. Um, her definition is guilt is when you know you think I have done a bad thing and the thing that you've done is not aligned with your sense of your identity mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. then shame is I am bad when you've attached right. the behavior as an inherent dynamic to who you are one of the things we therefore do is okay what does it feel like when we're being defensive and we really basically support people to start to understand mm. their emotions in their body because that is one of the key blockers to being able to have a productive conversation yeah, yeah, yeah. when i get defensive about whatever it might be i'm doing exactly what it is i'm defending my sense of my own identity because Absolutely. I believe that what I'm hearing is you've told me I've even done something or I am something that doesn't align with who I think I am. Right. Now, the bottom line with all of this stuff is that when you prioritise your own guilt, you're not, in fact, in service of correcting the harm that the other person might be experiencing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're making it all about you, which is fine for like a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but we can't just all sit around wallowing in our own guilt for stuff that we have done in the world. Mm. I mean, I would mainly say that's the work of therapists and counsellors, which is really important yeah, yeah. work. I'm not um, for us all to be able to kind of be responsible for, for our emotions. Um, but within this particular context, if you're guilt or shame is showing up such that you're trying to derail a conversation you don't want to engage yeah, yeah. you're trying to say no this isn't me how dare you or whatever it might be that is simply an unproductive use of a person's uh, time energy emotions yeah, yeah, and yeah. it has an impact on other learners within the group um so our method is all about bringing that to the surface you know having people close their eyes okay what are the sensations you're feeling you know mm. is it like a, you know you're hot all the way through your face you, you're, i don't want to be told that i'm this often no one's told you that you're anything right. you've taken you've it. taken all of these narratives and said you're whoever you are and you're then using that and weaponizing it in order not to have a productive conversation where we can move through to action you can only get to action if you've managed to put your guilt and shame aside because Absolutely. you're fundamentally committed to being that person that is committed to engaging in that action yeah, yeah, yeah. you can never really do it when you're just obsessed with your own guilt and shame or when you don't want people to think that you're a bad person because yeah. then all your effort is about performing looking good looking good mm. and looking good gets us nowhere in life no nope. gets us nowhere and l looking good 
it, yeah, it's it's a killer. It kills all of this stuff. And the reality is, every single one of us who's committed to, you know, engaging in the work of equity and justice in the world is going to make mistakes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's going to make mistakes. The key that I always say to participants is, you know, they say, oh, but I don't want, if I use the wrong language, I don't want everyone to, like, shout at me. And I say, no one's going to shout at you if you use the wrong language. But with using the wrong language in this space also means responsible for when you're being, when you've been corrected, then using the right language. That's it. You don't have to get upset at anyone. If we then, if you use a word and it's a harmful word and we say, don't use that word, use this word, as far as I'm concerned, that's the end of the matter. Just use the new word. Yeah. yeah. You don't have to say, oh, but I didn't know of this. Yeah, we know you didn't know. That's cool. Yeah, it's just need drama you don't need to create drama. It, right? Just use the new word. It's cool. But often the guilt <laughs> and the shame <laughs> comes up, right. the looking good comes up because we don't want to be someone that uses the wrong word because we think people might think that we're not XYZ if we use the wrong word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we end up dragging people in to conversations where none needed to be had just commit to using the right word and we'll all be grand yeah 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 absolutely what i love i mean it, mm. what i love about the sound of this uh, uh, and you know i've seen some of the impact of it as well is it's it's such brave work and it's the experiential piece and since you're bringing notions like guilt and mm. shame you're into really deep stuff there and you know kind of and often the the internal isms that we mm. have about our own intersections right. you know, if, you know right. if i had internal homophobia for example that kind of thing which for me is like the true personal development. Yeah. Um, bringing this back to kind of organizations mm. and that kind of thing. I mean, and I think this, from, from the Mavericks point of view, this kind of speaks to, you know, having like purpose-driven organizations mm. that are serving other organizations. Because right. you're not, obviously, the organizations you work with aren't just kind of not-for-profits no. or NGOs. You know, you're working with They are for profit. For profit, yeah. for profit. And like big, well-known <laughs> yeah, yeah, well. yeah. So what is the kind of... You know, we might say kind of equity, justice, mm. work, but as you say, when you were in the investment bank, not everyone believed we mm. needed a new banking system. Mm. So what becomes like the, the the business case, for example, or the, yeah, the, let's just say the business case yeah. within those kind of organizations for engaging in this, this work? Yeah. So we don't engage with the business case at all as an organization for a, a few reasons. Yeah. Um, the first is that no one's ever presented a business case for why white people should be employed in their organization. No one's ever funded that research. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it. No, no. One's, no one's ever funded it. It's entirely true. Never been funded. That's interesting, isn't it? It's really interesting. Because white people just ha deserve to be there. That's the fundamental That's assumption it. That's we the have, fundamental isn't assumption. it? They just that men, no one's ever done a business case on should men have a right, you know, what's the return on investment of men? <laughs> I mean, Lord help I us, right? That. No one's done it because everyone just believes they deserve to be there. Right. So the reason we don't engage in the business case is because to do so has some, if underneath it all, there's an implicit message that you need to prove yeah. why some groups of people deserve to have a job. Right, deserve to be employed and we're just not in the business of doing that because our assumption is well of course mm. of course if you want to tell me that they don't deserve to be there go ahead but we're probably not going to be the right people to work with you right, right, so right. by discounting that argument altogether we're just not going to get into that conversation mm. which is really like we're like you can be in that paradigm but we're going to be in this paradigm if you want to be in this paradigm with us let's Let's work together. So no convincing. Yes, yeah, no, just very clear. Mm. You're there. We're here. That's fine. Um, and so for us, that's really like, it then makes it really clear. Um, but what 
what we know is that the people that we work with they might have written papers on business cases here they whatever you know we're not preventing other people from doing what they ever whatever they want to do in their own time on their own emails of course mm. but what we what we're ultimately offering people is you can have cultures we do believe it is possible to have cultures in your organization where there is fairness where mm -hmm. there is equity and there is belonging if you also want that and want to work with us to do it we will help you to do it Love and that. then that's it i don't it's quite simple and if they're like well we're not really sure okay Fine. bye yeah 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 that's the end um <laughs> Again, uh, I, uh, there's this, this theme of bravery that, mm. you know, Brene Brown is all about kind of vulnerability, mm. for example. I mean, I guess the title is, it, the, the, the word is implicit in the name of the organisation, Fearless Futures. Mm. I mean, I'm kind of curious, do you see yourself as a, as a courageous or a brave person? Yes, I guess so. I, I feel, it doesn't mean I don't feel fear. I think that's something that's really important. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's, I, my mum had this great self-help book in the 80s on her shelf called Feel, Fear Feel and Do It Anyway. anyway Susan Jeffers. Right. Yeah. I've never read it. I only ever saw that. Yeah. But whenever... You uh, kind of got the gist yeah. of it from the <laughs> Just spine. Just from the spine. Didn't, she didn't need to write 300 pages. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, but I guess it's like, yeah, that's something f for me. It doesn't mean I always get it right, can get it wrong. Mm. Um, that's. I'm not suggesting it's, you know, that I'm perfect by any stretch of the imagination but i think i think to to work at fearless futures i think all of us have to be pretty courageous people mm. um because we're often speaking things that aren't being spoken by other people in context that they're never being spoken yeah, yeah. To, you know to even utter the word racism or um heterosexism or whatever you might in a corporate context and say no mm. this is a real thing in this this is a real thing and it's happening here and it's happening now doesn't really happen no. um and yeah and so yes now what i would also say is that i get to potentially take greater risks than other members of the team because of who i am in the world mm -hmm. because of my whiteness i get to say things about race that not all people of color necessarily get to say with right, safety right, right? right um because i'm heterosexual i can say things about heterosexism that other people wouldn't be able to say because I'm cis and not trans, I can, it's safer yeah, yeah. fundamentally for me to be able to say, hold on, that's not right. No, we need to prioritize this because the risks just don't really exist. Mm. They're very small, they're very short lived, which is something that we really try and get people that we know to, to really like get and digest. Yep. Yep. It's like, yep. it might feel scary, but it's just not the same the person that's actually living in that reality mm. so yeah i think there's there's courage um courage abounds with across all all six of us and our facilitators as well whether it's in schools or um or, or in organizations i think they they kind of i mean it's clearly endemic because if you know if part of your thing is you know as you say we don't get involved in like business cases yeah. like i mean you're you're really building a kind of it's almost what I'd call like the Pied Piper approach to marketing. It's like, mm -hmm. this is what we're about. Yeah. If that appeals to you, yeah. it's kind of almost a, uh, a culture of attraction, if yeah. you like. That's really interesting that you've used that phrase because we've never really done marketing 
at all. Mm. I wouldn't even know how to market us. Like, <laughs> <laughs> what would we say? But people have have started, and again, this is in the last year, getting in touch with us because they've heard from other people that yeah. something important has happened, mm. either for them or in their organisation. Um, yeah, I love that culture of attraction. I'm going to use that, Chris, that if you don't mind. No, not at all, <laughs> not at all. Please, please. So some huge things to uh to consider there as you know and you know things to, to wrestle with as it were i guess kind of just beginning to round off as it were i'm kind of curious like let's bring this right back to hannah mccloskey as it were i'm just kind of curious where because i'm sure there are days when you know certain days are easier than others as it were when they're not so good where do you go for your to, to refill to refill your wells of inspiration that kind of stuff where do you kind of fill back up um I go to my mother. She is an incredible human being, an extremely um, talented coach, uh, just a phenomenal person who is, yeah, the person I personally turn to when I'm in need of kind of recentering myself, getting back on track, you know, giving up the nonsense narratives that we all carry around with us that get in the way of being our best selves. So she's certainly the human that I go to for, uh, require and actually need for that level of kind of emotional support. And then I love TV, <laughs> love watching TV, love Netflix, love Amazon Prime. Um, I find really that TV is one of the few ways where I can really like switch off. I have a very, very energetic brain. I've always like got hundreds of ideas that not all of them are going to be sustainable or are going to be executed, but I do find that TV is the best way for me to kind of uh, come down to earth a little bit rather than being up in the clouds. Um, and yeah, we, those those two things are <laughs> my mother and my, <laughs> and my TV are the best. Awesome. Hannah, thank you so much for your time today. Um, this has been absolutely incredible. I'm, I think as I, I've taken a lot from this, actually. And, um, you know, this is probably going to be one of our longest podcasts. But as I think about this, I actually don't think... I think I'm going to let this run as much as possible because I think there's so much richness in what you've said. And for me, the thing I'm really taking from it is... Um, you're a different model of what bravery can look like. I think, you know, we can there can be a real kind of... Uh, stereotype of what bravery looks like or courage looks like and you're just kind of showing up here talking your stuff doing your thing but the point is you're doing it and you're very grounded and down to earth and very warm and you know I think this work is so important that you know obviously that you know and you're very aligned with our kind of values as well so just thank you so much for your time your generosity today and for being such an amazing guest Awesome. And there you go, Mavericks. That was Hannah McCloskey from Fearless Futures. And we'll look forward to seeing you on the next podcast. Bye for now. That was the Mavericks Unlimited podcast. And thank you so much to Hannah McCloskey for being our guest this week. If you enjoyed this, please do subscribe and consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find us. And with that, thanks for listening in. And I'll speak to you next time. Bye for now.